let's open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. I pray that as I preach it, you would work in us. And if we need to change, I pray that you would help us to do that. And if there are people here that need encouragement, I pray that you will encourage them. Father, we look to you for wisdom and guidance, and we pray, Lord, that you would teach us your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll be ending, finishing off Mark chapter 9 today. Mark chapter 9. The last section, starting in verse 42. You know, I talked about this a little bit last week, but uh, the one of the things that, that the Lord is working in the hearts of believers is holiness. God wants us to be holy. It's part of the reason why I read that section in 1 Peter this morning is because it's a section by the, the head of the apostles who learned from Jesus that holiness is important. We are supposed to seek after holiness. We are supposed to pursue godliness. We are supposed to be like God, and God is holy. As it says in, in that section, uh, be holy, for I am holy. That's, that is what the Lord calls on Christians to do. And in, uh, in this section in Mark, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus is teaching his disciples different ways on how to be holy. This is, these are not, uh, you can either do this or do that, but you should do all of these things because I have saved you and I want you now that I have saved you to be holy. These aren't things that will make Jesus love us more. These aren't things that are going to make us uh, better Christians in the sense that God is going to think more highly of us than someone else. But these are things that the Christian life is all about. It's about pursuing God. That is what we are to do. We are to pursue God. No one in their natural state thinks to pursue God. Nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, ah, it's time to go after God. People in their natural state are seeking after themselves. They seek after their own pleasures. They seek after their own joys. When God works in our heart... Through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives us a new desire, and that desire is to pursue God. And that's where salvation comes, is when we begin to desire God more than we desire anything else. That's a sign that you have been saved. You put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now you are a new creation. And that new creation, that new person, has a new desire, and that desire is to go after God and to pursue godliness. And so in this section, Jesus is saying to his disciples, now that I have worked in your heart, now that I have changed you and made you new by the power of my spirit through your faith in my death and resurrection, which will be coming soon at, at the time of Jesus saying this. But for us now, this is what Jesus is saying to us. Now that I have worked in your heart, now that I have changed you and given you a new desire, this is how you should follow. This is what you should be like. And so... Last week, we talked about humility, that you should consider the needs of others above your own, that you shouldn't seek advantage over one another, but you should be like Christ, who is willing to be humiliated 
in order to see reconciliation. And that we as Christians should be willing to be humiliated. We should be willing to be humble in order to see others succeed for the glory of God. Today, we're going to see repentance as a big part of of the Christian life. That when we get saved, we are to turn from our sin, which is repentance. We're turning from our sin and putting our trust in Jesus. But that's not the only time that we ever repent. That, as Martin Luther said, when Jesus called on people to repent, he meant that the entire life of a Christian should be one of repentance. That, That is what it means to be a Christian, is that we are constantly turning from sin. We are constantly trying to avoid sin because we love Jesus. And we know that our sin is the reason that Jesus died. And we don't want to see Christ dishonored through our actions, but we seek to turn away from those things and we seek to pursue godliness because of what Jesus has done for us. So if you have turned there in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42, we will read it. Please stand in reverence to the word of God. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. Please be seated. So one of the things that we see in this passage is God's feelings towards sin. How does God feel about sin? What does God think of sin? Well, obviously, God doesn't like it because he wants you to be willing to cut off your own hand rather than sin because sin leads to death and sin leads to hell. And if we are going to claim to love God, we have to turn away from our sin. We are not able to love our sin and love God at the same time. It would be like trying to chase two different people at the same time after they've gone in different directions. We cannot pursue God and pursue sin. It just doesn't work that way. And so God is saying in this section through Christ, like Christ is God, that we are to turn away from our sin. We are supposed to be willing to get rid of our sin. But he starts off by saying, he he starts off by talking about something that is a really grievous sin that we should not be doing. He starts off by saying, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So right there, you can see what God thinks of sin. You can see that God thinks that just causing someone else to sin, so not even sinning yourself, but causing someone else to sin, that it's better for that person to be thrown into the sea with a rock around his neck than to do that. Because the alternative is hell. 
The alternative is eternal destruction in hell. This is not good news. This is bad news. We don't want this to happen. There are lots of people who would say that hell doesn't exist and that even if it does exist, that it's only for the worst people. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that hell does exist, that hell is real. Uh, I, I was talking to a Jehovah's Witness one time, and he said that, G, that, that hell wasn't real because Jesus talked about it in parables, and therefore it's not real. Which I think is kind of ridiculous because they believe in the kingdom of God. But Jesus talked about the kingdom of God in parables. So they still believe in the kingdom of God, but they don't believe in hell. And, and I think the reason that they don't believe in hell is because they don't want to believe in hell. And really, who wants to believe in hell? I don't want to believe in hell. I don't think you want to believe in hell. But hell is a reality. Hell is an actual place. Hell is an actual thing that exists. And just because we don't like it doesn't mean that we can throw it out. Especially when Jesus, who does not lie, who cannot tell a lie, talks about it. And so we see in this section that, that hell is a real thing. And, and it's better for a person to have a great millstone hung around his neck and to be thrown into the sea than to go there. That means it's really bad. That means that people shouldn't want to go there. That means that we should not want other people to go there. And Jesus talks about hell even later in this section. He talks about hell as being a place that is an unquenchable fire. He talks about hell as being a place where the worm does not die. These, these are not positive images. These are, these are terrifying images. And, and we should know about these because I think in some ways, us knowing about hell is a motivation for evangelism. My story is kind of built around my understanding of hell. My, my reason for being a pastor is because my grandfather died when I was about 19. And I knew that if I really believed in hell, and if I believed the, what the Bible says, that people who don't believe in Christ go there, then what I believe is my grandpa is in hell. And so for me, I realized that it would be rather than deny, try and deny the reality of hell or try to think that hell is somehow not quite as bad as we think it is, that what I should be doing is instead accepting the realities of hell and try and make, it, make sure that no one else goes there if I can. And so I went off to Bible school kind of reluctantly, because I didn't really want to be a pastor at the time. I didn't really want to do what I'm doing now, which is funny because now I can't imagine doing anything else. But at the time, it was more out of a compassion for people because I didn't want to see them go to hell. That that was the reason that I went to Bible school. And over the course of time, I realized that being a pastor is a wonderful gift and, and I wouldn't stoop to become a king. This is such a great job, but for me, it was understanding hell that brought me to a place where I thought, I can't just let other people go here. 
without saying something. And that's why I talk about it in this situation is because there are a lot of pastors out there who don't talk about hell. There are a lot of pastors out there who don't want to talk about hell. And, and you probably also don't want me to talk about hell. But we need to know about it because we need to know where our unbelieving friends and neighbors are going. We need to know that this is people's eternal destiny so that we can save them, so that we can snatch them out of the fire, so that we can make sure that they don't go there. Or if they do, that they're going with us kicking and screaming and holding on to their ankles. I believe that was Charles Spurgeon who made a quote like that. If people are going to go to hell, let them go with us holding on to their ankles, screaming for them to stop. That's, that's why we talk about these things. And I think that's why Jesus talked about these things. Because God is a compassionate God. And God is calling on people everywhere to repent. God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. God calls on us to do something about it. So if you have friends, neighbors, or family who are not believers, then you need to know that this is where they're going. They're going to the unquenchable fire. They're going to a place where the worm does not die. And I know that sounds like bad news and you, it makes you probably uncomfortable. And I would say I'm sorry, but I'm not, because I think we need to be uncomfortable sometimes. I think we need to think about this. I think if we're, as a church, going to make any difference in this town, it has to start from a place of fear, that we are afraid of where people are going. That we don't want people to go there. And so Jesus teaches his disciples about it, and his disciples are teaching us about it through the Bible that they wrote by the power of the Spirit. Let's not forget. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. We must always be watchful. We don't want to cause others to sin. We know that sin leads to, to death, and death for an unbeliever, leads to hell. And so when we are causing other people to sin, we are essentially pushing them closer to the fire. For us, Christians, we need to be innocent. We need to pull it back. And we need to be willing to love people and to draw them in rather than push them out. We need to love one another. And it, what, this is specifically talking about other Christians. Who, whoever caused one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea because hell is that bad. We must never, ever, ever cause one another to sin by being belligerent to one another, by pushing our own way on one another, by refusing to forgive one another, by refusing to apologize to one another. This is what Christians are supposed to be. We are supposed to be people who never push another Christian to sin. This is partially talking about what we talked about last week, which is we don't want to push our greatness on to someone else. We don't want to seek our advantage over one another. 
We are to consider others as more significant than ourselves. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now, what is this referring to? I, I've, I heard a story about a guy once who he cut off his hand, literally. And he came up to his friend and he said, I've cut off my hand. I guess uh, I've cut off my hand because I think it was causing me to sin. But now that I've cut it off, I can't cut off my other hand, which is also causing me to sin. So can you help me? And his friend panicked and grabbed an ice pack and put it on, put his hand on ice and wrapped up his hand and drove him to the hospital. And they took him in for psychological counseling because you're not supposed to actually cut off your hand. But what is this referring to? What are we actually talking about here? What does Jesus mean when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off? If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Well, I think the question is answered for us in the book of Hebrews. If you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, we'll see the answer. Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, the book of Hebrews uh, up to this point has been talking about, uh, well, right before this section is the, the Hebrews Hall of Faith which talks about the faith of people in the Old Testament who came before and, and how we are to uh, imitate them and imitate their faith. And, and then the book of Hebrews says, therefore. So this is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, like they did, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So imagine running a marathon with a backpack full of bricks and trying to win with a backpack full of bricks on. It would be very difficult to win that race with that backpack on. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is instead of running the race with the backpack on, Take off the backpack and cast it aside so that you can win. Don't carry things that are going to hinder you from winning the race. Now, notice that it says every weight and sin. So this is not just talking about blatant sins. This is talking about anything that gets in the way of you following Christ. You are to throw it aside. This is the Christian life. This is the call to holiness. The call to holiness is being willing to abandon all things for the sake of following Christ. This is what we are to be. This is what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying if there is anything in your life that is causing you to sin, that is dragging you closer to hell, you need to cut it out of your life. You know, for some people, maybe it's your cell phone. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's, I don't know. 
But these things that are causing you to sin, that are leading you astray, if you're a Christian, you need to cast them aside. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to cast aside every weight and sin and to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We don't do these things because we want to be better people, and we want to look better to those around us. We do these things because it's what Christ did for us. We do these things because of the grace of God, which led Christ to the cross on our behalf. You can turn back to the book of Mark. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Sin leads to hell. Now for a Christian, who a person who has put their faith and trust in Christ, your sin does not lead to hell. But, if you refuse to repent, it's a sign that you don't actually believe. Repentance is actually a sign of genuine faith. Hatred of sin is a sign of genuine faith. Because a person who says that they love Jesus, and yet does the things that Jesus died for, is a sign of a person who is double-minded. When we sin, we are pouring more pain on Jesus' head. And so for Christians, we don't want to do that because we love Jesus. We don't continue in our sin so that grace may abound. We don't do that because we don't want to see more pain on Jesus' head. We don't want to pour more on Christ. We hate sin. We don't pursue sin. We avoid it. We turn away from it. We repent of it because we love Jesus, because Jesus went to the cross for us, because Jesus redeemed us. That is the sign of a true Christian. A person who says, I'm a Christian, but continues in sinful lifestyles is a person who doesn't understand what it means to be a Christian. It's a double-minded person. It's a hypocrite, really, when you get right down to it. A person who refuses to turn from sin is a hypocrite, or a Christian who refuses to turn from sin is a hypocrite. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You know, I I was looking at this and, you know, most of this section doesn't really need a whole lot of interpretation. It's mostly just we reflect on the truth that is here. And this section, this little tiny two verses that talks about salt is, is probably the only part of this that really needs a little bit of, of interpretation. So I was looking into this, and I think that 
well, the, what the what the commentators told me, <laughs> and and I think that it makes sense is when they're talking about salt, what they mean is repentance. Because this whole section is about repentance, and so it seems to follow logically that Jesus is just using another word to try and help us understand what it means to be a repenting person, what it means to be repentant. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? It's like repentance is good, but if your repentance loses its repentiness, how will it be repentance? It's not really repentance. So if, if you're a Christian, if you're calling yourself a Christian, and you're saying that you have repented, but you continue in your sinful lifestyle, then your repentance isn't really repentance, is it? It's just empty words. Jesus is saying here, repentance is good. You, you should repent. You should turn away from your sin. But if you only turn away from one sin and you continue on in another sin, then you're, it's not a balancing act that we're doing. We're not trying to say, okay, well, I'm going to keep on, oh, I don't know. What's a good sin? <laughs> Sorry. What is, what's a sin that I could use as an example here? Um, lying. I am going to continue lying, but... I've stopped cheating on my wife. Well, I mean, yeah, it's good that you stopped cheating on your wife, but you're still sinning by lying. And so this isn't, God isn't looking at you and saying, oh boy, I'm sure glad that he stopped cheating on his wife, but he's still lying. So I guess that's good. God is saying, no, you need to turn away from all of it. And by the way, well, forget it. Never mind. I'm not going to go there. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but the salt has lost its saltiness. How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Repent. Turn away from your sin and be at peace with one another. That the only way that Christians can have true unity is if together we are turning from our sin. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to turn. And, and the only time... You will ever be able to do this is when you understand grace. Because otherwise it just becomes a frustrating gritting your teeth and closing your eyes and not doing anything because you might sin. We have grace. You know, we sang a song earlier, To God be the glory of great things he hath done. One of the lines in there is, The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives it's not that Jesus conditionally saved you to see if maybe you'll turn away and, and get bad again and then he'll take away your salvation because you're being bad because if Jesus took away everyone's salvation for being bad everyone would go to hell because all of us fail to repent that doesn't mean that you're okay. That doesn't mean you're allowed to fail to repent. It doesn't mean that you can justify a failure to repent. But it means that when you do fail, there is grace. There is grace. When you put your faith in Christ, that moment from Jesus was a pardon received. 
He didn't forgive your past sins and then is leaving it up to you to make up for future sins. He saved all of you for all time. He saved you from all of your sin, I should say. He covered it all, past, present, and future. It's done. It's finished. It's over. That is the Christian life. That all of these things, that we, we are to turn away from sin. 100% we're to turn away from sin. But when you fail, there's grace. There was grace before you failed. Because Jesus knew that you were going to fail before you did. There is grace. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, I pray that if there's anything that I have left unsaid, I pray that you would bring it to our minds later. Father, I pray if there's anything that I have said that is wrong, that you would expel it from our minds. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts. By the power of your Spirit, I pray that you would lead us to repentance. I pray that you would help us as Christians to seek to be holy and that we would have peace with one another as we do. Father, I pray that if there are people here who have never truly repented, Father, I pray that you would save them. I pray that you would help us all to cut sin out of our lives. I pray that you would lead us and protect us and guard us from our sins. Help us to be led away from temptation. And help us to desire holiness. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.